Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbele, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information, check out biota.org slash podcast. Well, we have two callers on the phone so far. I think the first one is Bruce Damer. Hello, Bruce. Hello, Tom. Hey, Bruce. How's it going? Good. We have a second caller. Let me just bring them in. Hello, second caller. Hi, it's uh, Scott Shaper. Good to talk with you, Scott. We've been in correspondence for a, a few months now, so it's nice to have you on the Buy It podcast. Well, as you're both familiar with the format, we have a, a few bits of news and notes. Well, let's start with Great on Silicon Valley. You guys had a meeting this week. Yes, indeed, and Scott was the star of the show. It was a very warm reception, and uh, it, was, uh, it was very fun for me meeting other members of the artificial life community. Hi, Bruce. Hey, hello, Scott. And you demoed your, your project at the Gratham meeting, didn't you, Scott? I did. I, I actually demonstrated uh, two projects. One, which uh, I can hear more of a legacy uh, version, sort of version 1.0, uh, which is a, it's a very simple simulation of, uh, of, I call them critters, as apparently calls their artificial life critters, uh, except for you, Tom. So I demonstrated that. And then I demonstrated a, uh, a, a second version which has in, in which basically the critters can eat, eat each other instead of just eating food. And so that, that drives some evolution. And the second version is, is one that I, I, I hope to make an open source platform and, and share with the And you folks plan on meeting again at the end of June as well? Yes, I think we've got uh, June 24th as a proposed date. I'm waiting to hear back from Jeffrey because we'd be at the Internet Archive in the Presidio. That would be wonderful. And Bruce, you're heading over to London soon after, aren't you? Yes, if all goes planned, I'll be heading to London on July 5th and be a, a week at the University of East London, which would be my first session on my PhD, should I choose to enroll. But they've, they've invited me there, and they've get, done all the applications and accepted me in the program. So I'm just going to sit with the uh, advisors and other students and uh, do my first session. And if, during that week, I decide I'm going for it. I'll just enroll formally enroll, and then at the end of the week on the 11th, uh, we have a Graysome London at uh, British Computer Society down on near Drury Lane. Wonderful. Yeah, and then it'll be all about the topic uh, we're talking about tonight. The flyers have updated progressively, and I think when we settle on a final version of the flyers, I'll certainly put them up on the Biota site, because the, the one we've seen most recently is very aesthetically pleasing. It's very kind of William Gibson-esque. Now, folks are actually listening to this podcast or actually the internet radio show, more importantly, live via Second Life currently. They are having, I guess, weekly Graytham meetings in Second Life, and they start off the meetings by listening to this free radio show, which is wonderful. So I'd like to say hello to all the folks that are listening in through Second Life. If you are a Second Life aficionado, you can go to biota.org slash podcast and click on the link which gets to the location of Graytham Second Life. Apparently it's a uh, beach house looking over some water. So if you're interested in Second Life and you're listening to this live, or alternatively, if you're listening to the podcast, I've had feedback from podcast listeners this week who, when they found out about the uh, Graytham Second Life group, clicked on the link on biota.org slash podcast and had a wonderful chat with Natalie Gordon of previous podcast fame. So there tend to be people hanging out there at, uh, at all hours. So if you're listening to this in podcast form and you're also interested in Second Life, check out the link on biota.org slash podcast and see if there are like-minded folk congregating. In other Graytham news, there may be a Graytham Brighton starting very shortly. I've had some correspondence with uh, folks in Brighton, and there seems to be a critical mass with regards to that. 
Now, Bio to Live News, there will not be a podcast next week. I'm going to a friend's wedding. But the week following, um, we're still working on a topic. I understand that Justin Lyon and Gerald de Jong will be meeting in Rome over the next week. And I'm asking if they can record some audio with that meeting. Um, there may be some discussion with regards to the Evo grid and Darwin at home changes. If they can't do a recording, or alternatively, if they'd like to gather together in a bio to live, we may do a Saturday matinee the week following in order to get feedback and discussion from the folks in the UK and Europe. Particularly if there's a, a Grayson Brighton setting up, that would be wonderful to have those folk on the podcast. So, as per last week, at the end of this podcast, I will be playing a promo for the new Robots podcast. They've been very good to Biota through their two-year history as the Talking Robots podcast, but now the folks that created the Talking Robots podcast are moving over to the Robots podcast, which you can find at robotspodcast.com. All these links will be in the show notes. For folks listening in live to Blog Talk Radio, the number to call is 646-200-0640, and there is an active chat room currently so if you don't want to make a U.S. call, you can get in the chat room and submit questions or discussion points with regards to this evening's topic. Bruce, since we last talked to you, what has been the, uh, the development with regards to the Evo grid? Well, for me personally, getting accepted into the Ph.D. program, um, and Scott, just as an explanation for you, I actually started a Ph.D. work at the University of Southern California in 1985, this is our prehistory on artificial life, uh, there was no field by that name at the time. Several A-Life people actually were in our department who became uh, A-Life people. But I was in the computer architecture optical physics lab and decided at the time that it was just not viable to try to do such a project with the computing power we had and the networking we had, which was the early you know, Internet, ARPANET, just become Internet. And so an uh, odyssey of 20 years ensued where I went into the, the uh, field of avatars. I helped uh, a little bit on this whole effort by starting biota.org, which was a community-based organization. We had four conferences. The computing power kept growing. started working with NASA 10 years ago and built all these open-source 3D tools. And finally, when our, our large, large NASA contracts concluded in January, I decided to, to take this up again, and I was invited by this university in London to apply, and I thought to myself, okay, it's been 22 years. What is going on? Well, there's a lot of wonderful artificial life work going on, uh, but what it really needs to do is get all connected together. And so I decided, well, my contribution in the 21st century to a 1980s idea was to serve as a kind of evangelist, visionary helper to help existing A-Life projects come up with a dialogue, a language to dialogue, and try to get them to, uh, to talk and objects to move back and forth and a network effect to take, take hold. So I put that in the proposal. The university accepted it. Uh, there's going to be assigning the advisors. I'm going to be assembling an advisor team, including people like Richard Gordon, who has been on other podcasts here, and certainly I would count Tom as an advisor already on this thing. And so the Evil Grid name came up about three months ago when my name is standing for Evolution Grid. And the domain name was, was available, so evilgrid.org became a kind of a moniker for it. And then started to talk about it to 
the extent community from people from the Grey Thumb group and back in March to, of course, Tom was the first person I talked to. And uh, this this group just in formation and a lot of the old characters in the field uh, like Jeffrey Ventrella and, of course, Gerald DeYoung and seem to get an architectural okay and especially from the Grey Thumb people and from Jeffrey, the idea that it really is worth pursuing. So my entire... Uh, work in this area and the research and the PhD rests upon the interest, excitement, intellectual investment, and time of the community at large uh, to to make this thing real and to to really come up with a good definition for it. And I think we're part part way there. And that's a, a long-winded answer, Tom, to your short question. But that's the achievement. I think is that the discussion's happening. The name is out there, and people are asking, uh, how do we make a grid? that expresses the evolution in in distinct projects with distinct properties, but still as a grid. Yes, I got an email today from a, a long-time Noble Ape user who had stumbled across the XML phenotype, which is my kind of introductory interface into the Evo grid. And he immediately saw it as being very useful for um, visualization technology to kind of pick up this, not necessarily explicitly rich, but certainly very descriptive method of uh, talking about the simulated entities from the Noble Ape simulation. I made the point back to him that this was really, um, I think I said last week as well, the kind of sniffing and seeing aspect of what Noble Apes would look like to other simulators. So I think people are starting to get that this is not only a very powerful tool for getting simulators communicating, but also potentially a tool for getting uh, renderers and existing graphics engines into the very rich ecosystems that uh, are currently growing out of artificial life. From a purely applied end, as uh, an artificial life simulator, potentially other artificial life simulators like Jeffrey or Gerald or John Klein or Dave Kerr or these kind of folks, where do you see them starting with the EvoGrid uh, interaction? Do you see them as needing to create XML phenotypes or some higher-level dialogue? or I mean, what's, what's your vision with regards to the existing artificial life simulators? Well, one concept that came from both uh, Brian and Adam and Grace on Boston was to the initial version of the EvoGrid to expo- uh, have the different ALI systems export XML to describe their environments and the objects in them, and then as almost a representation layer, and then the web, there would be a web portal almost that would say, here are the environments out there, and here's what's going on in them. And I think that that's, that's really a, a tremendous idea, uh, because then you could say, well, it's easy to sign up and to, to expose what's going on in your environment, because all you have to do is generate this, these, these XML nuggets, and then we can report statistics, the number of entities and the state, the current state, etc. My excitement, uh, I think we can, we can probably do that pretty easily, uh, my excitement is when there's there's transfer, when there's, a, as I think Brian or Adam described it as migration, when one system, a noble ape, suddenly decides to uh, export itself to Darwin's Park or Gene Pool accepts an immigrant or dispatches one of its creatures to another environment. And, of course, immediately the creature being wrappered in XML, and I, I came up with a term for this that just sort of came to me in a dream, as many things do, which is I, I call it the capsule. 
So the XML that describes the creature and its needs and the APIs that it has, the affordances and APIs, is in this XML capsule, and it's unwound in the target environment, and then it, and then it tries to have some kind of existence. And that would be a more advanced phase, I think. And you'd probably try that between two, two environments as a test, kind of like Alexander Graham Bell and Mr. Watson making the first phone call. That would be a kind of two-phase two approach. Certainly that was Brian's feedback as well, that this thing really starts lazing when there's more than just one simulator, when there are two or three or four that are all in some regard collaborating. Scott, what do you see as being necessary initially to integrate your artificial life development into something like the Evo grid? Yeah, that's a very good question. I'm not sure I know enough to really answer that right now about the Evo grid. In terms of simulators who have additional questions, you originally were developing a, a wiki with regards to this. I know there are PowerPoints online and there's plenty of audio from the related podcasts. If people wanted to distill Bruce Damer's current thinking with regards to the EvoGrid, how would the fastest way to, to establish that be? Probably email me <laughs> directly to force me to uh, create a, a better definition and to update the wiki. And I, I, I invite any any and all comers, because it will be a huge motivator to email me at bruce at damer.com. It's probably the easiest thing to remember. So they should contact you directly, and you'll, you'll email them back your current thinking. But I think the, the important thing with the Biota Wiki as well to also let the community know is that whilst you need a, a login and a password, anyone in, in the existing artificial life community and even you folks coming to the Evo Grid and the artificial life community are more than welcome to get usernames and passwords. So I think what will be interesting with the wiki in particular, and certainly after I get off this call, I'm going to dutifully paste in stuff on the Noble Ape phenotype with regards to um, the potential inclusion and early discussion of the Evo Grid to take some of that workload off you, Bruce. But I think the ability for folks not only to correspond with you initially and get your immediate brain dump, but also give a, a great degree of feedback. I mean, this has been the, the strength to date in terms of your trip to Boston, in terms of the folks you've been able to gather together in the Bay Area, is that each developer has their own particular vision with regards to the Evo grid. I know I asked you something like this in April, but how do you, how do you think this will all be collated in some regard? I think, I think we actually do need a sort of librarian collator function, and I started that, uh, and we had a lot of great dialogue on the mailing list, but uh, either myself, yourself, or a combination of, of, of anybody out there, you know, I, I, perhaps I should really be deeply involved in this because it's concept development time and community leadership time, so I should really be doing that, and I, perhaps, Tom, if you're bugging me, I will, get, I will get it done. In fact, I have to get it done before leaving for London. So um, evogrid.org right now is a placeholder that simply hopefully points to the wiki so that it's an easy way in and has a, a couple of links to other things. But the wiki really is where the action should be to capture all of this. Let me just say, um, so I find the Evo Grid just uh, seems like just a fascinating idea and just very worthwhile on, on many different levels. But I just have some concern that, that the projects that I want to work on wouldn't necessarily fit well into the Evo Grid. 
uh, at least the way I understand the Eva grid to work, which seems to have a bias towards three-dimensional physics simulations. So is that is that correct? Uh, I'm, I'm just getting my, most of my information from the, the summary off the uh, Evo grid site. It's actually completely open. Okay. I have background in 3D and, and physics, so I tend to, and we all love Carl Sims' Evolving Creatures, so I tend to like, uh, I'd like to see that happen, but in, in reality, there, more of the environments are high-performance 2D, uh, 2D environments, and mm. so I think that there really shouldn't be any, any uh, bias toward one or the other, and so just getting two, two different environments, say, for instance, we had Micropond, that's the, the new and final name of it, and uh, Gene Pool talking. In, in some sense, they're similar yet different environments, but that might be a, an initial bridge that, that might, might be quite effective. Or have Noble Ape and, and Micropond talking and, and or Gene Pool, mainly taking existing environments that already are well characterized and just having them, them communicate. Mm -hmm. And I think an important point, Scott, is that you are at a stage where you can actively participate in the dialogue as well. I mean, I think most of what Bruce is saying currently has has been rewritten, if not once, twice, maybe even three times through the processes we've tracked it so far through the Bio to Live updates. So my mm -hmm. feeling is that the way to interact currently is to, you know, invest the, I can't think, probably only took me about six hours to write the XML phenotype and get feedback for Noble 8, but just invest a little time, write what you think would be a, an XML-style phenotype to describe your existing simulation, and then start jamming with that. I mean, it isn't something that is uh, currently set in stone. What I'm looking forward to with regards to the Evo grid is taking the aspects of three-dimensional visualization that a number of users have been demanding for a number of years and saying to the community, well, there are a number of existing, quite attractive three-dimensional visualization engines, Bruce's digital space being, you know, pretty well the primary one of those. And I'm providing a visualization method to take what is fundamentally two-dimensional in Noble Ape, although there are planar functions, but the apes just move effectively in two dimensions, and put it into a, a rich graphical environment like digital space or Breve or something like that. And the other aspect is Tierra and all these kind of simulators which aren't even necessarily two-dimensional. They're even more abstract than that. And I think what Gerald is talking about now with regards to nuances is similar. If, for example, just the genetic component of what Gerald is talking about with Darwin at home, or for example in Noble Ape, the cognitive simulation, which is a three-dimensional simulation fundamentally, had an interface into the Evo grid, you could have multiple layers of simulations communicating into this environment. Really the time is now in order to participate, interact, nudge, poke, twist, you know, do what you want to do with regards to getting your ideas into the Evo grid. We have a third caller. Let me bring in the third caller. Hello, third caller. Hi, Dick Gordon here. Hi, Dick. How are you? Okay. You kept invoking my name, so I thought I ought to ju <laughs> jump into the uh, fray here. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you on. What's your thinking with regards to the Evo grid? Well, I'd like to back up, and not on the Evo grid, but this question of emergence. Uh, let's, let's take let's take the the simplest case of uh, the game of life. If you stick your nose on a game of life board, all you will see is lights flashing on and off. You won't see these uh, gliders and things like that. And the emergence depends very much on the scale at which you look at things. 
Now, if you consider physics, fundamental physics, the, the physics we uh, all learn in high school and undergraduate, is like sticking your nose on the board. You don't see these emergent phenomena occurring. Now, physicists are trying to deal with those emergent phenomena, and they have all sorts of nonlinear equations and whatnot, which, when you stand back from the phenomena, they do produce emergent sort of things. But when you talk about what's happening at the fundamental level, level of atoms and protons and stuff like that, it isn't there. I refer to this as what I call the poverty of physics, that physics isn't really capable of dealing with emergent phenomena because emergent phenomena are in the eye of the beholder. They're not in the physics. So that's where I'd like to put the challenge. And can that challenge be rephrased in the Evo grid? Well, yes, in the sense that you see, if uh, I mean, let's take let's take the let's take a spe specific case like the voids, the uh, the simulated birds. Again, if you put yourself in, let's let's say you fly with a bird, okay, with one of these birds, and you had a bird's eye view of the swarm, you wouldn't see anything. All you would see is a couple of other birds flying nearby you near nearby you in parallel which is what is simulated in the simulation. It's only when you stand back from it that you see the swarm, the ability of them to maneuver around a building and stuff like that. And that's, in a sense, at a higher level in our perception of what's happening. It's not in even the simulated physics. I think this is, this is where the problem is of emergence. The emergence, in a sense, is more in our heads than in the simulation. And it's through our ability to observe the entire simulation. Yes, yes. I mean, look, look, I'd like to give a simple example. Let's suppose we do a very precise molecular dynamics simulation of water, okay? So we've, we're simulating these water molecules bumping around and whatnot, and the simulation runs and runs and runs, and now we set up parameters such that ice should form, okay? Now, I don't care how long you run that simulation. At no point will the simulation ever stop and say ice. It will never do that. We can do that by looking at the output from the simulation, but the simulation can't do it. Why? I think that, I think there's a key to the, this question of emergence in, in trying to answer that kind of question. So framing this in the Evo grid discussion, what you're saying is that we need to have this basic physics in order to create the Evo grid. Well, the basic physics is important but and, and essential, but recognition of emergent phenomena requires perception, and perception has to itself emerge. And that's why I wrote a paper on what I call the emergence of emergence, that emergence itself is a higher order phenomenon that comes along with perception. It is not inherent in the systems that we simulate. So, Bruce, in terms of Dick's challenge, how do you see it interfacing with the existing EvoGrid discussion? I think this is an extremely good point because it begs the question of how do we determine where, when the EvoGrid is actually generating something that's of interest that's sort of biologically, it's life-like, if we believe that life is, is all about emergence. Who, is the who or what is the measure of that? And I think that if you look at Carl Sims' blocky evolving creatures, it, it all, even though the physics is very bulk, it's just, it's just basically rigid body physics, it is noise unless you see the progression of, the, say, the gorilla walker from, from its simple form. But if you just see, if you put your nose against the screen and you see things moving around, you again are the observer determining that, oh, there's, there's an advanced form of walking has come in. And so 
I completely hear you, Dick, on this on this problem and challenge. So, what advice would you give as far as the perception part of things? Would the perception be have have to be an emergent phenomenon, an, an emergence, emer, emergent emergence? My approach to it would be to try to create a an artificial life simulation where what comes out of the simulation is a perceiving system. Okay. Now, I can give a concrete example of that. If you take bacterial chemotaxis, where bacteria swim towards or away from chemicals that uh, may be a source of food or, or a source of danger, you can get bacteria which will do that, and you'll have related bacteria that don't swim at all or, uh, or may lack components of the chemotaxis system. Now, if we could figure out how you evolve from a bacterium that does not have chemotaxis to one that does have chemotaxis, then I'd say we'd have an example of evolution of perception. And if we can simulate that emergence of perception, then I think we'll have a step towards answering these questions. Does this go to the one of the uh, our hosts, actually, at SRI, is an SRI scientist, and he's interested in the influence of social dynamics of, of simulated organism to simulated organism interaction and how that whole overall affects the adaptation. Well, again, you could do that with bacteria because uh, bacteria, many bacteria exhibit what's called quorum sensing, where their behavior, they, they have a means, usually a chemical means, of measuring the local density of other bacteria, and they behave differently in response to uh, detect, so to speak, detecting a quorum, and so they have a social behavior. I read an, an article, I think about a year and a half ago, about this. It was fascinating, showing augers with different food, you know, nutrient densities, and how the quorum sensing caused really distinct patterns to emerge in in the bacterial colonies, based on the, uh, on the richness or of the oh, food. yeah, the bacteria will slow down or speed. That, those would be swimming bacteria, and they can slow up or speed down uh, depending on the local concentration, which will then lead to patterns. You can set up equations for the pattern formation and show that you, know, you can solve these equations. Uh, that usually happens in very thin layers of bac- bacteria. I have a question for, for you both, Bruce and, and Dick, Scott here. It, it sounds like both of you are, are talking about artificial life as a tool towards understanding biological evolution. I'm wondering if that is what you see the ultimate goal of artificial life, if that is sort of an implicit goal of the Evo grid. Well, it's certainly, it's certainly one goal. I mean, uh, you know, we, have, we have some fundamental problems. Uh, I put out my challenge, of, I guess, a week or so ago on origin of artificial life. Paralleling, paralleling origin of life. I think indeed that artificial life is a great tool to try to solve some of these fundamental problems of real life. But uh, mm. uh, it's also fun in itself, so <laughs> I wouldn't sure. strain it to that. One question I, I have when we talk about using artificial life as a, as a tool towards understanding biological evolution is um, that seems to imply that the simulation needs to be as realistic as possible or else, you know, it, it loses its connection to actual, actual biological evolution. Would you, would you agree with that? If you make it realistic, then you presumably will come closer to the biology? Or? Well, if your goal is to understand how bacteria evolved, it seems to me that you would, you would need, unless you wanted to sort of demonstrate kind of the principles of evolution at a, at a much higher abstract level, 
if you if you actually want to simulate actual the actual evolution of real bacteria, you know, you would need to do it in a, a realistic environment. Well, yeah, I suppose, but the you know we've been talking about the possibility of simplifying physics because uh, it, you know uh, on the one hand it's the more physics you put into the environment, the more complex your simulation gets, and the more uh, uh, computing time you're going to chew up just just simul- simulating the environment. On the other hand, right. it's clear that certain aspects of physics are probably irrelevant to real life, uh, at least in a, in a direct sense. I mean, we talked about neutrinos, for example. Uh, we have only recently learned how to perceive neutrinos, and we have to do it with these enormous caves of scintillating liquids. It's not something that we do as organisms. And therefore, even though we're bathed in neutrinos, about I think the concentration where we are is about 300 per com- cubic centimeter. You wouldn't bother putting them into a simulation of the environment for artificial life. I agree with this analysis in that if you, for instance, wanted to simulate all scales, so from bulk macrobiology to fluid-based or soil-based microorganisms, micro-microbiology, you would soon outpace the computing power of any large supercomputing grid or array. And so you, you, it might be wise to choose a scale and do something within the same scale. And it might be wise maybe to choose life in solution where there's a physics, there's a cost and energy to move through the solution, but you don't have to worry about rigid body dynamics. Okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with you on that. I, I just got invited to uh, a conference, which I unfortunately won't be able to attend, but uh, uh, it's called Processes and Forces, for creation of designer materials with multi-scale structures. And it's part of a set of international forums on multi-scale structures and and dynamics of complex systems. Now, it's kind of funny in a way because this is is sponsored by Unilever Research. One of the lead-off papers is on the structure of ice cream. I suspect people are starting. If If you look at the literature, people are indeed starting to handle what are called multi-scale structures. We've talked about multi-scale physics, uh, multi-scale organisms. You know, simulate an organism both at the molecular, cellular, tissue, uh, organism, and uh, social level. Those are that's a multi-scale system, but it's starting to be tackled in computing in many different fields. I, I think, uh, though, I haven't seen it in artificial life. So maybe uh, you know we're just being a little too shy about it. But here's another interesting part of the process. If you look at things like computational fluid dynamics, and I remember talking with Bruce in particular about his Mars and Martian simulations with regards to dust clouds and things like that. I mean, there are still a lot of questions to be answered with regards to aspects of computational physics. And as Dick stated when he was last on, just through sheer lack of understanding also with regards to the kind of things we're discussing in terms of if we want to call it computational biology or or what have you. And I think the question with regards to simulating down to a particular resolution with the existing knowledge clearly wouldn't provide the correct answers because we don't have the necessary existing knowledge. I think this is a beautiful example where artificial life can actually feed back into biology in terms of providing a, a 
as Dick was discussing last time, a, a set of atoms in some regard that one can model biological systems with. I'd like to return to a comment you made a little earlier, Dick, with regards to emergence and perception, and this actually goes back to the Evo Grid too. The problem with regards to emergence and perception for a contemporary artificial life is that the artificial life simulator and to a lesser extent the artificial life user are actually part of the simulation. They either provide... Yeah. <laughs> we have to simulate ourselves, ultimately. Well, yes. So, I mean, the, 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 the interaction means that it's very difficult for simulators to take a step back, and it's very difficult for our users to take a step back because we are actually interacting with the simulation. And this is ultimately a question back to Bruce. Do you see the Evo grid as being something which is set up by simulators and, and run indefinitely and then tinkered with occasionally? Or is this a rich environment that analogous to existing artificial life users can interact with, participate, and become part of the selection pressure as well? It really depends the um, goals for the Evo grid. Say, for instance, Say, say, Dick, and this is maybe a challenge more for the, bi the, the biology side. If our goal for the for the Evo grid was that in you know sometime in the future, biologists like yourself looking into the environments would say, hmm, I see patterns here as an observer that lead me to suggest that this would be interesting to study as though it were a living system. I will start to study the life cycles, the simulated artificial life cycles of this. Because it's interesting to me as a biologist, I've, I've seen a lot of patterns in the past, and I'm seeing patterns that convince me it's worthy of study. Is that an, an object, good objective for getting somewhere I, with this? I don't think it's adequate. I mean, look, look, I don't have a solid conception of EvoGrid, but it seems to me that if EvoGrid is a simulation of an ecology, then you could ask questions like, uh, uh, can one of the simulated organisms come to perceive one of the other simulated organisms as the source of food that it didn't do so before? Ah. Okay. So in this regard, the organisms are doing the perceiving as opposed to the simulators, observers, and users. Exactly. And if you could get the emergence of a predator-prey relationship that didn't exist previously, and predator-prey relationships are perceptual acts. I perceive you're edible. Okay, I perceive you're a danger. I act accordingly because if I don't act accordingly, then I go extinct. Part of this problem that if you have a large-scale simulation, that predator, particularly because of the intimacy of the predator-prey relationship, obviously the prey isn't going to be giving an affidavit after the fact. So there is a problem with regards to vast simulation environments that this initial predator-prey relationship can actually be masked by people not observing it or it being unknown in some regard. We could report that back by, by reporting back to the people who wrote the organism and say, well, your, yours went extinct in the in Evo grid because they all got eaten, okay? And they, didn't, they did not evolve sufficient defenses to avoid this situation. So you, you could report it back to the, uh, to the uh, programmer that way. In other words, uh, do you conceive of Evo grid as a zoo or as an ecology? If it's a zoo, then you've got cages around everything and everybody's protected from everyone and you're just feeding them. We would hope an ecology where such emergent phenomenon as predator-prey relationships would, would spontaneously occur. Then I say, let's get on with it because it could indeed... There are lots of simulations of predator-prey relationships, but have you ever seen anyone simulate the emergence of a predator-prey relationship? Well, as I recall, and Tom or Scott, you may be able to 
come up with other examples, but in Tierra, didn't Tom Ray at that time watch um, kind of a, what was it, a, it was a host-parasite relationship? Ah, yes. Yeah, yeah, he had something. something it was like there a predation-adaption relationship as well, where something had been preyed upon and then was able to change so it was no longer preyed upon? Okay. I don't. I don't think there was in Tierra. I think Tierra had opportunistic strings that that figured out how to get the larger organisms to make copies of themselves. Uh, but I don't think there was there was predation per se. So this goes out to the biota community to email a uh, a good example in time for the next podcast. I think. Okay. So, so this is interesting, Dick. You've actually started to give requirements for the components of the Evo grid in order to fulfill the roles that you see. And these are, in fact, quite abstract from the physics. They're actually to do with the communication. So if an organism eats an organism, then it reports that back as well. There's almost a, a dual reporting role. Well, well, uh, you know, with, with programmed life, you can always report anything back you want that you can measure. So uh, the question is whether the reporting is uh, simply an observer from the outside or, <laughs> or the reporting is generated by the organism also as part of its adaptation. But then, how shall I say, it then becomes our pet. Scott, when Critters 2 or Micropon 2, when we were seeing uh, the other day predators in, with the red, red body elements, gradually right. to dominate, would you say that that is, in fact, something that's spontaneously emerging and that he was an observer seeing everything suddenly going red, or there's a phase transition actually occurring, sometimes sudden, sudden changes occur in micropond? Not all the critters can suddenly evolve to fully be predators because they, they will die out. The, the green dots, basically in micropond, um, the way it's set up is that a, a critter, if it has a green dot, it photosynthesizes and gains energy, but another critter can move on to that green dot and eat it. And actually, I have seen uh, different types of behavior emerge where, you know, critters will go from being entirely, evolve over time from being entirely photosynthesizing to being entirely um, predatory. I have seen uh, in, in a few cases environments where there's a, there's a very kind of stable ecosystem of three different types of critters that seem to have different strategies. Can you phrase that behavior in terms of an evolution of perception by the critters? I mean, honestly, a lot of the behavior is what I've contributed. You know, I, I've contributed a an eat, a move and eat instruction, or photosynthesize, ah. or or a look instruction. So it's okay. it's relatively high level. That's where you're uncertainty about what you're writing in versus what you're getting outcomes. Because I'm uh, I'm not putting these in a full physics simulation where they're you know they can detect different frequencies of light and evolve sensory apparatus to figure out what they're looking at. Um, I'm, I'm having to abstract a lot. I, I recall an account of Nanopond, which is Adam Eremenko's project given by John Klein. And I'm not sure whether this made one of the podcasts or didn't. There's just so much audio associated with these podcasts now. But he was discussing a scenario where in the early Grayson meetings, they got together and tinkered away with Nanopond and left it running. And there was some code that emerged. My understanding of Nanopond is it's post-Tierra, perhaps more like Core War, or I think this what became Autocore in Adam's own development. And they ended up with some code that they had to debug at the end in order to understand why this particular piece of code had emerged and dominated the ecosystem that they'd created. My understanding is that probably from what Dick has said, there may exist 
things already in the community that have come pretty close to what Dick is requiring. My interest in the EvoGrid is more with regards to this ecology component. An EvoGrid could turn out to be a system where things like Tierra and uh, AutoCore and NanoPond are the dominant simulations. In fact, to completely reverse what Scott was saying earlier, where the two and three dimensional simulations are in fact the poorer cousins to the one dimensional simulations in some regard. So I think this really goes out to the community to correspond with regards to their own simulation experiences. And I'm not sure whether the EvoGrid will actually be answering Dick's question or whether there may be an existing set of simulations that could develop in a one dimensional EvoGrid. Bruce, there was some discussion with regards to the being separate islands for different kinds of simulations, one-dimensional simulations, two-dimensional simulations, simulations with particular kinds of physics. Do you remember the compartmentalized version of the EvoGrid at all? Yeah, that was, that was Brian's idea. And then we got into all these discussions about you know, how things would migrate between these environments. Would they have any relevance? It would be like Abbott's Flatland, if you remember that, that book. And how, how, do you, how do you interface if you're a two-dimensional creature into a three-dimensional space. So that, that le- that's, fairly, that's a fairly complex issue, although the way that things are done in the Internet, distributed teams that have different approaches and build different servers over time through protocols can, can get some kind of commonality. But in a certain layer, FTP, FTP applications always talk the same language to other file transfer applications. They don't necessarily talk to virtual worlds very so it's, it's a very, very complex issue. Bruce, um, so with, with that concept of different of islands, of different types of, of simulations, was there a thought that a, an artificial life from one within the island, from one Evo grid element within this island could migrate to another and do more than, than just simply talk with other, with other creatures from different elements but actually move into one? That, that was the idea, um, being one example being the University of Paris team, led by Claude Latoad, has done this L-system growing environment, and but it lacks any kind of what we would call polyvores or herbivores that are a selection pressure on the, the growing virtual plants, so that you would have a, an environment that, that has a, a good herbivore kind of uh, creature that could actually then migrate into this very rich polygonal environment and interact with the, the artificial plants and create something greater than the sum of the parts. I'm curious if, if Bruce, you, you imagine a, an artificial life form that evolved in, a, say, a one-dimensional environment, if that could ever actually migrate into a, into a three-dimensional environment. That's a great question uh, about emergence. Dick, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, if EvoGrid actually has organisms interacting, I suspect that none of your favorite organisms will last very long in EvoGrid, that they will all evolve into something quite different. The protocols, if the protocols are available for communicating and interacting between one, two, and three-dimensional aspects of it, uh, I don't think you're going to recognize, after it's running a while, I don't think you'll recognize any of it, any of the originals, except through, uh, you know, fossil genes and whatnot, so to speak. I think this, um, if you remember the book, the book chapter, there was a term that I coined in there called onset opacity. So perhaps these systems always become opaque, 
uh, to our understanding if they're truly oh you mean like like neural nets and whatnot yeah yeah. neural nets will solve a problem but go figure out what their logic is right (laughs) you know (laughs) I suppose in that sense you're right if it's opaque how do we interact with it Oh, how do we interact with it? Well, if it becomes robotic, it might become dangerous. So I don't know. We might, <laughs> you know. That's that's one beauty of a 3D simulation is that you, the objects are much more recognizable, I think, than just uh, a string of bytes. I would use the Nobelite cognitive simulation as being a counterexample to that. There are things that can emerge in 3D environments which are visually very challenging to interpret. So with four minutes remaining, we've moved from a evolve or be eaten kind of uh, motto for the Evo grid to an evolve until you can't be seen or be eaten motto for the Evo grid. So I think probably for our next podcast topic, we should explore some of the aspects of what we've discussed today. And I urge the folks in the biota community who are listening to this podcast to contribute questions and discussion points. We may have Gerald and other folks in the UK-Europe area involved with the next Biota podcast. I'd like to thank the participants. Dick, are you still in Second Life while you're talking to us? My computer crashed on Second Life, so I'm not in there right now. Alas, well, I'd like to send a shout-out to the, the Second Life folk, unless you're the, the provider of audio as well as um, okay. a participant. I, I, I think we have to start getting this, sec- uh, see if people want to get into the Second Life uh, group and and have a regular meeting time or something. Now, my understanding was that from the last podcast, people were actually turning up there, and I understand Natalie had a few discussions with a few folk that turned up there at random times as they found the link. So perhaps organizing set times or things like that, because apparently people are going there and they are having discussions. They're just not all having the same discussion together. Okay. (laughs) So it's a gathering point rather than a formal meeting currently. We, We probably should put in a guest registry so we have some track of that. Definitely, definitely. I just want to add one quick comment, and that is that Bruce's comment on 1D or, or Gerald's versus versus 3D, uh, in real life we have that. It's DNA versus the three- or four-dimensional structure of the organism. I think that's that's very true. And okay. with that, I think we have to conclude this evening's discussion. I'd like to thank the three participants. And, Bruce, I hope we've given you plenty of food for thought going on with regards to the Evo grid. Absolutely. Well, thank you all very much, and we'll be back again in in two weeks' time. Hi, I'm Adam. And I'm Sabine. Welcome to Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. As you can hear, we are currently putting together the new Robots podcast. 
Our new show, Robots, will continue to report on the science, technology, and business of intelligent robotics. In addition to insights from high-profile professionals, Robots will take you for a ride through the world's research labs, robotics companies, and their latest innovations. The first full episode of Robots will be released on Friday, June the 6th, 2008. Until then, visit our website at www.robotspodcast.com and send us your comments, news, and views. If you have not done so yet, make sure to subscribe to our RSS feed. Hope to see you in two weeks.